Uh, we are continuing our look, obviously, at the Gospel of Luke, and, uh, and we are now, um, we have moved into uh, the fourth chapter now, so we're kind of making our way through, and uh, today we're going to be looking at the first 13 verses of that fourth chapter. It's a passage that I'm guessing uh, many of us um, are familiar with. With. And this is Luke's take of the three temptations of Jesus. And here we go. Here's what Luke writes Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tested by the devil. He ate nothing at all during those days, and when they were over, he was famished. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become a loaf of bread. And Jesus answered him, it is written, one does not live by bread alone. Then the devil led him up and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And the devil said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory, for it has been given over to me and I give it to anyone I please. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered him, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve only him. Then the devil led him to Jerusalem and placed him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to protect you, and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not dash your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered him, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every test, he departed from him until an opportune time. And sisters and brothers in Christ, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this day, a great day for us to gather together as sisters and brothers in Christ. And Lord, we seek after you. Lord, we know that your kingdom is not of this world. And so we pray that this morning you would help us to remember that deeply and that we might know what difference that makes to how we live this very day. And I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditation of all of our hearts will be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. Amen and amen. So again, one of the great things about slowly going through a book, through this gospel, is the simple fact that everything that we see really is in context, if you will. We know exactly what happened right before this scene. If you were here last week or if you watched online, uh, you know the situation that last week, of course, was the baptism of Jesus. And we talked about the fact that when Jesus was baptized, how we heard the voice from his father saying, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son whom I am proud of. And so we discuss the fact that at baptism, part of, the, uh, of what the importance of baptism is this reality that your identity is found in God and God alone, that that is the most important thing is for the, you to know that you are a loved son and a loved daughter of God. 
But of course, in the environment in which we live and of course, bubbling up from inside of us, there are continual doubts as to whether or not this is actually true. And with great frequency, whenever it is that we find that we have gone off track, the likelihood is the reason why we have gone off track is because we have forgotten who we are as loved children of God. And you see, this is why this is important. We get this right. You see the waters of baptism. You hear God the Father saying, this is my beloved son. And then what happens? Jesus goes into the wilderness. And do you know what you don't have a lot of in the wilderness? We could, a lot of things, right? But one of those is water. Not a lot of water in the wilderness. And so one of those things that's supposed to be a reminder of who we are is all of a sudden dried up, if you will. And then, as one's biblical scholars now of the end of the third chapter, you know, you remember that. And we bring that into this fourth chapter and we hear, do we not, that two out of the three temptations, how they are begun. If you are the son of God. Isn't that fascinating? So right after this event, when Jesus is told, you are my beloved son, I am well pleased. Here's this water, this great reminder. Now all of a sudden, there is Jesus. There's this vivid, usually it's not quite this clear for us, but here there is this clear temptation. Are you sure that you are really loved by God? Are you sure that you are a child of God? Because what Satan knows, what the world knows, is if you begin to doubt that seriously, then all of a sudden that is when you are most likely to begin to respond in a way that is not the way that one would if they knew that they were loved children of God. This is this beautiful image here. If you are... And then he begins to give them temptation after temptation after temptation. The very first temptation, of course, comes when Jesus is hungry. And you know this, if you've ever uh, gone on a diet, you know when you're hungry, everything around you looks delicious, does it not? I mean, everything, right? You're pouring the, dog, the food for the dog and you're like, you know, that kibble, it doesn't look horrible to me like it used to, right? I mean, all of a sudden, there's nobody, fine. I've wondered. And so all of these things, right? And everything looks like food. And when you're in the wilderness, you know what you have a lot of? Stones everywhere. And so when Jesus is looking around, that one stone, it sure looks like a loaf of bread. It could be a loaf of bread. I wish it was a loaf of bread. And Satan says, hey, if you really are a love child of God, why don't you just turn all of those stones into bread? All of a sudden, you've got a bakery, and you know you can just kind of smell it, can't you? Of course, a part of the reason why this is an effective temptation is just the physical realm, right? Just because of the fact that Jesus is hungry. But, but when you begin to try to say, well, what are some of the deeper kind of understandings to this? And there's lots of different interpretations. I, I kind of like what Dale Bruner suggests, which is, he says, you know, he's sowing again this doubt on whether or not you're loved. And, and so there's a couple different ways, really, that we can look at this. One of these is this, if you really are loved, you know, would God let you really just be hungry? Would he want you to just be hungry? 
And so sometimes we have these doubts, right? If we're going through a difficult time or if we're looking at the world and the the dismal state that it's in and we begin to wonder, well, if God really loved me, if God really loved the world, why would he allow this to happen? And and why not? Why can't we just quickly have my my, my loved one who is uh, be be healed? Or or why can't I just quickly find a a job because I hate the job I'm in or I don't have a job? Or or, or why can't my wayward child just, just start following Jesus? or get his or her life together. If God really loved me, then God would do that. God would, would stop the war. God would stop poverty. All of these things, if we're really loved. And so it begins to cast doubt. Or perhaps, Bruner says, maybe it's also the sense that if I was really a loved child of God, I wouldn't struggle like I struggle. I wouldn't be hungry like I'm hungry right now. I wouldn't have these failures and I I think I'm loved, but then I just keep failing. Surely there's no way I'm a loved child of God, but if I could do something really good and spectacular, then I would know that I'm a loved child of God rather than simply resting on the reality of your baptism that was the key reminder that you are loved by God. God. And so there is this question, are we only going to trust? Is Jesus going to trust only what he sees and feels around him? Or is he going to trust that God is alive and real in his life and that he is loves? And so Jesus said, man does not live by bread alone. And there's this clear sense of living by the spiritual bread of the Almighty, of the sense of trust in God. Second temptation, of course, Jesus or Satan kind of takes him up, you're told, and immediately he sees all of the kingdoms and he says, look, all of this, you see it all, it could be yours. You would be in charge of everything if you would, but worship me. Now, this is an incredibly tempting offer. And it's an offer rooted primarily in this fact that immediately, Jesus, you could have power. Immediately, everything that you're wanting to do, it could all be done. And you know what you won't have to do then? You won't have to endure you won't have to endure through these disciples, you know, these followers who, who, who they tell you, you know, that they love you and they, they tell you they want to follow you and all of these things. And yet they're continually making mistakes. They're continually arguing. And then eventually even they will deny you and betray you. You don't have to do that. You can just be powerful. You don't have to deal with these crowds because you know, Jesus, one moment they're going to be cheering you and the next moment they're going to be deriding you and they're going to say, crucify him. They're going to be doing all these things. You don't have to deal with any of those things. And you know what? You don't have to like listen to people. You don't have to forgive anyone. You don't have to sacrifice. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to do any of those things. You can just have power to do all the good things you want to do without having to actually love. I love what Henry Nouwen says about this. He says that so often power can become a substitute for the hard task of love. 
You see, what Jesus is doing right here is Jesus is saying, no, 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 no. The way of my kingdom is not like the kingdom of the world. This is not a top down from the power. This is a way of loving and sacrificing and suffering and listening and forgiving. It is a wholly different kingdom. And that is really hard for us to understand. We see uh, Christians making this mistake with great regularity. I'm gonna bring up politics again, just briefly. Please hear me before I say any of these things. I think it's great when Christians are in politics. I think it's great that Christians run for office. I think those things are wonderful. But what I want to speak to, however, is with great regularity, and we'll hear it again. We're already hearing it. There is oftentimes a sense, if we can get the right people in government, then God's kingdom will finally come. And that is a framing it in terms of power. The kingdom of God is going to come. I hate to tell you this, not when you elect the right people. It will come when you, when we serve and serve and love and forgive and are patient and doing all of this hard work, it would be much easier, would it not, to just be able to check a box and all of a sudden it's all done and we don't have to actually suffer? Who doesn't want that? I would vote for that person. But that person's Jesus. And the way of Jesus is different. Now, again, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be in politics. Are we hearing this or am I going to get the email? I'm saying it again on the recording. That way I'll just do a clip. There's, there's the link. Now, the church also struggles with that just as a church. Let us be very clear. Right? The church does this when we say we want to emphasize or when we, when we put our hopes in success over faithfulness. When we are more worried about the numbers than we are about relationships that are being made. When we are more concerned about the spectacular and the exciting than we are about being a people who are in the, going in the long obedience in the same direction. The church is easily consumed, it seems to me, by the powerful, by the exciting. We have said this time and time again, but we have to continually be reminded of it because it is the way of our culture and we are continually influenced by the way of our culture because we keep forgetting our baptisms. We will know that we are being about the kingdom of God, not when we hit a particular number in worship, but when every person who comes through the building knows that they are seen, knows that they are listened to, knows that they are loved. We will know that we are being a kingdom, the church of the kingdom of God, not whenever we are trending by any stretch of the imagination, but by when we are inviting our neighbors into our homes and we are getting to know them and we are extending grace to them and we are reflecting Jesus to them. We will know that we are the church that is being built into the kingdom of God, very different than the kingdom of the world, not when we have the most exciting worship services or the most exciting kids program, but when we are willing to endure in a steady, stable, and plodding way, one another, when we are caring for each other, when we are taking care and loving, just like we see in the church in Acts 2, in such a way that people around us in the community are beginning to notice that there's something different Third temptation. Satan takes him up on a pinnacle and he looks over and he says, you know what, why don't you just jump? 
Because here's the thing, you know. Angels are going to catch you. You don't have to hurt. There will be no problem. You just drop and there will just be an angel that will just comfort you. It'll be amazing. Now, of course, one of the things that we need to at least just say briefly is that this is a great reminder to us that just because you hear someone speaking scripture does not always mean that that person is speaking it correctly. It's always important to go back and to check it and to make sure because there's a lot of scripture. There's a lot of cross-stitching out there that may not be really all that great. And so we need to be careful whenever we hear kind of these words thrown out from scripture and just we need to make sure that it comes in context. That's being a good disciple. But again, here we have this promise to Jesus, this promise that perhaps you can actually live and you don't, Jesus, you don't have to be vulnerable at all. You will never physically suffer because the angels, they'll just catch you. You don't have to do any of that. There's no vulnerability, no risk. And this temptation very much is this question of you don't actually, you, you don't really have to be human. You don't have to be as human as these other humans. You can just kind of look, look-ish human. I love what Philip Yancey says when he looks over this particular, all three temptations, but this one as well. He says this, Satan tempted Jesus toward the good parts of being human without the bad. To savor the taste of bread without being subject to the fixed rules of hunger and agriculture. To confront risk with no real danger. To enjoy fame and power without the prospect of painful rejection. In short, to wear a crown but not a cross. Jesus' kingdom is remarkably different and from the very beginning of his ministry, that's why this is such a great and critical passage, from the very beginning of his ministry, he is making it clear that his kingdom is going to look remarkably different than the kingdom of the world. In many ways, it is more costly. It is more sacrificial. There is more servanthood. There's more forgiveness, all of those things. But it is also incredibly rich and deep because it is a kingdom of love, not a kingdom of power. It is a kingdom that says we're going to take risk and we're going to be vulnerable and at times that will be painful. But in those moments when we begin to see the reward of what it looks like to have followed Jesus, we will begin to see how all of this was worth it. All of this journey of which we have been a part for, uh, for thousands of years all of this is worth it. It's this remarkable scene. It's this remarkable reminder to us of the radical nature of the kingdom of God. Now, here's the question. And I think it's almost always an important question. And the older I get, the longer I pastor, the more important I think it is, which is this. How? How? How do we follow Jesus in this way. Jesus gives us the invitation to take up our cross and to follow him. As someone has said, this is not really the greatest sales pitch. How do we actually 
follow Jesus in the same way? How do we see the different kingdoms, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of this world? How do we resist the temptation? How did Jesus do this? What might we learn from Jesus in this? Well, one of them, of course, that we have to say is that the Holy Spirit must be present. We saw the Holy Spirit in the baptism, right? It came down and then we're told that the Holy Spirit, right? They were in the wilderness together. So we know that the Spirit was there with them. But one of the other things that we see is the critical nature that Scripture plays in Jesus' ability to understand the kingdom of God and to understand the kingdom of the world and to be able to resist the kingdom of the world. There's this fascinating thing. If we want to know this, I like what um, Ruth Ann Reese says. She says, in a world of competing stories, competing kingdoms, we must know the Christian story so that we can point out the other stories that so easily take us captive because they promise the joy and the kingdom without any cost. There are two different stories. And what N.T. Wright says as he looks at this particular passage, he says, you see what Jesus is doing, right? Jesus here is retelling the story of the Israelites. I love this. Remember Jesus, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, Brendan did when he preached about the fact that Jesus was in the temple, right? And he was there and he was asking questions and he was giving answers and people were impressed that Jesus was somebody who was absolutely immersed in scripture. We've been talking about this a lot. You know, you got this tapestry of the kingdom of God, right? And here's Jesus right here, you know, uh, around, you know, 10 or 20, whatever it is, AD. And then, and then, and then he goes back and see, here's the thing. He goes back. Hey, Stephen Kay, are you going to the brunch? <laughs> I knew there'd be somebody. And they tried to go when I turned my back. Did everyone see that? They don't know. I have mirrors right here. I saw, I love Stephen Kay. I wouldn't have called most of you out, but I would call them out. I'd call you out too, Scott. All right. Now, where was I? Now, now I'm thinking about the brunch. All right, here we go. He's looking back. And he's looking at Deuteronomy. And there are, there are all three of his replies are in scripture and all three of them come from Deuteronomy. And all three of them come from the time when it is that the Israelites, guess where they are? They're in the wilderness. Exactly. They are in the wilderness. And so there they are and they're in the wilderness. And guess what? They keep being tempted right? They're tempted at one point. Why are they tempted? Well, they're tempted because of the fact that they're tired. They're sick and tired of this manna. They want something different. They want a different kind of food. And so they're whining. And so what does God say? You do not live by bread alone. The exact same thing that Jesus says, right? Then they're out there and they're getting tired of God. And they know, sure, you know, wait, does God still care about us? Does he even know us? Am I really loved? And so they begin to worship other gods. They worship the gods of Canaan. And so all of a sudden, you know, what does God say? You worship only God. The same thing that Jesus said. The third time, you know, they're still wondering, well, we don't know. Where is God? Is he still here? We want some water. Tap on that rock and then maybe there'll be water. Then we trust in him. And God said to them, do not test God. The exact same thing that Jesus said to Satan. Here's what I want you to see. That Jesus had been so immersed in this story. He had surrounded himself. It was a family that was going. They were going on pilgrimage every year to Jerusalem, as Brendan pointed out. And they were, they were in scripture. He knew the scripture. And he was so immersed in it that when he went out into the kingdom of the world and then those temptations were coming, he had been so shaped and formed in a different way that all of a sudden he was able to be able to 
to see the two different kingdoms and he was able to resist the kingdom of the world for the kingdom of God. This is why this is important. You see, I want to suggest that far too many of us, we have this tapestry. It's why I keep talking about it. We have this tapestry of God. We have scripture. We, we, have, our, uh, we, we have our worship services and we want to just take something and we kind of pick it up and then we walk and then we just try to kind of, you know, we try to use it in some way in our life and we try to say, well, let's just, let's try this part and we detach it by and large from who we are as a community, from worship, from scripture, from this tapestry. We, we, we forget that we're a part of this larger thing. We don't immerse ourselves in it. And so we just try to take it and then we go try to use it and ah, it works okay. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But there's no real life in it. There's no real sense of actually being able to overcome real temptation. There's no real sense of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world in any deep way. It's more of an intellectual ascent. Here's, here's what I mean. So uh, many of you know that I, um, I, I, I have a hobby of, uh, of learning German, right? And so I've been doing this off and on for, for years and years. And, and most of the time, the vast majority of the time has been here in America. And the, let's just for the analogy's sake, the kingdom of America, okay? I'm not trying to say anything by that. I'm just saying the kingdom of America, okay? And so I've been trying to learn it from here, you know, and I, you can do it online. Actually, there's a lot of great tools and it's great. You can learn some grammar. You can learn, you know, uh, different words. You can, you can kind of get it, but, 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 but you don't really get it. And, and the problem is it's really hard to stay motivated by this, you know, because you, you go out, nobody else's, I mean, there's a a few people speaking German, but not very often. And, and, and they're like, why am I doing this? Maybe Spanish would make sense, you know, because you actually see Spanish. There's a lot of Spanish speakers around, you know, but then, so then you try, there's a reason why I've been off and on. I do it for a little while and I don't do it for a year or two. And then I've forgotten everything. So I start all over. There's just not much life in it. It's fine. It's great, but it's not that great. So then this last summer I said, okay, you know, here's why I'm going to immerse myself into the kingdom of Germany. And so I did. And so I went over there and, and I got to tell you, you know, one of the things that you, that you know, you guys already know this, most of you, that when you go in, it's, the, the difference is not just language, it's the difference in how they do everything, right? So I could give you so many examples, only a few, you know, I, I rented a car that first day because I couldn't figure out the train. It was so weird. I even spoke to, a, to, a, to an English speaking German woman about the train and it was like, I had a reservation, but I didn't have a seat. And I'm like, how do you have a reservation, but you don't have a seat? What am I just going to stand for six hours or two hours? Whatever. It didn't make any sense. So I was like, I'm just going to rent a car. Surely that'll be easier. And, and it wasn't. And then they give me this car and then they give me a key. And you know what the key looked like? It looked like one of those three and a half inch like floppy disks. I'm like, what is this? And I thought, well, I'll just go in. I'll sit down. Maybe there'll be an easy way for me to see this. And I kept looking. I couldn't find it. So then I had to go and try to find somebody, you know, who could help me. This is very embarrassing. And remember, I hadn't gotten any sleep. And so then I get on the road and I'm trying to drive. And they don't, you know, the signs, they don't say north, south, east, west. They just give you like the city name, which is great if you have any idea where that city is. But if you don't, like I don't, then it's trouble, right? And I'm like, I don't know. Yeah, let's go there. Let's just see what happens, right? And so you, you're trying to go. And then, of course, they have the different speeds and, and the speed limits are in different. And it's in kilometers. I have no idea how fast I'm going. And so then you just keep going and I go into the gas station. I can't figure out how to pump the gas and then I can't figure out how to pay. And then they're having national credit card issues and it's, it's all this very strange thing, right? And, you know, I have a story about uh, being shamed. I'll tell this some other time, you know, in a grocery store for not knowing how to, how to buy bananas. I mean, it was all of these things, right? And so, so there's just this whole strange kind of thing going on. And then on top of all of that, you know, then there is just literally the language, right? And you're just trying to learn the language and, you know, you go there and you talk to somebody, you, you know, you, you go and you've got high hope. 
hopes. And, and then they just, you know, they, they start talking. They keep talking. You're like, how do I, how do I, how do I end this without looking like a complete fool? And there's no way. And then, then you would try to speak to them and they couldn't really understand you, you know. I had a couple times, you know, when I would go and pretzel, you know, it's very easy. It's like, it's like pretzel, you know. And I would literally, this actually happened. My family was there and I said, ah, I'm pretzel bitter. I'm pretzel bitter. I'm trying to impress my kids here. They're literally hanging. This is true. It's a true story. And I said, I'm pretzel. And she looked at it and she was like, oh, pretzel. <laughs> That's exactly what I've been saying, right? And so just this one little bit off that, that clearly made it sound like I was saying something wholly different, right? So I was living through this. And for the first two weeks, genuinely, this is true. I, I said, in fact, I, I texted my, my buddy Rusty. I texted Megan or talked to Megan. I was like, why am I here? I am an idiot. This is horrible. It's a nightmare. I don't understand anything. I'm out of place. Why did I come to the kingdom of Germany? I love the kingdom of America. It makes sense to me. It all makes sense. Now, there was one good thing, which is this, that I was in a school with other people who were not from the kingdom of Germany. The vast majority of them were from the kingdom of America. And so we could sit there. And what was fantastic, oftentimes this would happen on Mondays because we you know, had the weekends off and we'd go out in the, you know, different parts of Germany or elsewhere and we'd come back together and we would sit there and we would kind of discuss our misunderstandings, our, the things that we misspoke, the miscalculations we made, all those things. It was a time of confession where we could really be honest. It was actually very cathartic because in those moments when you're doing something really stupid, you feel like you are the only one, right? And when you come together and they're like, oh yeah, I did this thing. You're like, wow, that was even dumber than me. This is great. I love this, right? And so you would have these moments of confession. But then of course you would have these uh, momentary moments as well where, where, where maybe you, know, you would get one little thing right and you could come and you could share and they'd be like, oh, she understood pretzel. This is amazing. You said it right. And all these little moments, right, that were, you know, that, that, were, that were helpful. And then we're beginning to say, well, maybe this, is, maybe this makes a difference. I had been there five weeks and about four days. I was three days away from leaving. I was at an Airbnb with my family. We were in the living room. This cute little Airbnb just outside of Freiburg. And my, uh, the, the, the owners, the husband and wife, they came out and their English was not very good. And so we began to speak in German to one another. It was almost an out-of-body experience. I'm genuinely not kidding. Because as we sat there and we started having this conversation, now please hear me, I am certain I sounded like I was six years old to them. This is not, it was not overly impressive, but I was able to speak to them. They were able to speak to me and I understood it. My wife and kids were clueless about what we were saying. And in that brief moment, I, I kid you not, I almost wept because of the fact of all of the shame, all of the mistakes, all of the feeling dumb, all the ways of saying this is a waste of time, all of that. And for one brief moment and what I would call a profanely sacred moment, I was given a glimpse into the kingdom of Germany. I had stepped out of the kingdom of America and I was there and they were impressed with my German, the only people who ever said they were impressed by it. And they said that and it was incredible 
And in that moment, all of it was worth it because I understood completely this whole other kingdom. But none of that would have happened had I not been willing to be immersed, to take all the risk and the vulnerability and the sacrifice and the, uh, doing all of these things, it only happened when I was willing to endure those things. But because I immersed myself in, I had that momentary glimpse. And I can assure you that when you have that momentary glimpse, you think, ha I want to keep doing this. I've got this thing, which of course I don't. But I had a momentary glimpse of having it. See, here's what I want to suggest that when we want to actually live in this kingdom of God, this radically different world that is a completely foreign world, let us be very clear about that. And if we want to endure that, the only way for us to do that is to immerse ourselves in scripture, to immerse ourselves in the story of this kingdom, to immerse ourselves in our worship service. That is why we do what we do. Remember what we said. This is going to be the third week in a row because here's one of the things I learned. When you're in a whole different kingdom, you have to hear it again and again and again or you will forget it. Am I right? So here, for the third time, when we have a baptism... When we last week felt those waters as a remembrance of our baptism, what was that? So that when you go out, perhaps when you turn on the tap water, you will remember that you are a loved child of God. When you immerse yourself in the waters of baptism, then you go out and you remember it. But it doesn't always, it's not perfect, right? I mean, on Wednesday night, I have a home group I'm a part of and I had hot tea, which meant I poured water and we sat around in the group and we had a question that alluded to whether or not, you know, I forget the exact question. It's something like when you see water and pour water, do you think about the fact that you're a love child of God? And I was holding the tea and I said, no, I forgot. And so I had to be reminded again, this is what happens. But when you are immersed in baptism and in a worship experience, the more you immerse yourself, don't detach it. Then when you go out, you begin to experience. Let's think about communion, the bread and the cup. And we say this again and again. Remember that Jesus was reenacting the Israelites. We say it again and again. It's a remembrance. What is the, what's the Lord's Supper? What do, we, what do we remember in that? What happened in scripture? What do we call it? Breaking bread. The Last Supper, Jesus, it's fourfold. Jesus took bread and after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it. He took it, he blessed it, he broke it, he gave it. We say it again and again and again. We take the cup and we pour the cup and we want to be immersed in that. We want to be immersed in that. See, and why is that? Is it just so that we can come and detach ourselves? Oh, we're gonna come live in the kingdom of God for just a moment and then we're just gonna go back to the kingdom of the world and not think about the kingdom of God. No, here's what Eugene Peterson says about communion. He says this, he says, we initiate the remembrance and proclamation of salvation at the Eucharistic table. Then we continue it at every meal to which we sit down. For the Christian, every meal derives from and extends the Eucharistic meal into our daily eating and drinking, our tables at which the crucified and risen Christ is present as host. Here is what I'm suggesting, right? We've said this before, but the reason why we keep this table in here, it's a table, it's not an altar, is so that when you come up, when you come in, you remember that and we become immersed so that when you go out, even here, wait eight more minutes, when you go out and you are taking biscuit and you are breaking it and you are eating it and you are pouring gravy, this is not sacrilege, and you are pouring gravy, I want you to remember 
what we do at the Lord's table. I want you to remember that the Lord is the host so that when you go and you are there and you're meeting around, you're like, who knows where grace might all of a sudden just pop up. When you are at your home and you've invited people over, remember, we are taking and blessing and breaking and giving and we are sharing it. This is these moments of grace and love where God may show up. Now, please, let me be clear. You may invite neighbors over and it may be horrible. You don't always see it. You don't always experience it. But the more that you begin to frame it in the immersion of of this partaking in communion, the more likely we are to begin to see holy moments of God's kingdom all of a sudden popping up, if even for just a brief moment. Or what about community? Let's remember, let's go right here where Jesus and his disciples, you remember this, his disciples, they're from different places. They have very different temperaments. They likely have very different political persuasion. You know, most folks think if you have a zealot and if you have a tax collector, these are two very different people. And what does Jesus do? He takes this group of very different people and he brings them together for his mission. Now it's not easy and they're constantly having disagreements with him and with one another. There's always this fighting. He's having to forgive and listen and serve all those things. But remember, he does all of that. Why? Because they have this greater sense of the kingdom of God. This is what the church cannot forget. The church far too often acts like the kingdom of the world, which is this. If you agree with me on everything and if I really like you, and if you are in the same socioeconomic status as I am, then we will be together. And that is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is a radically different kingdom. Remember this. What did Jesus call Peter at one point? Satan. Get behind me, Satan. All right, you're still a part of this community. So until you've at least called someone, another congregation member, Satan, you're probably still good right there. But of course, it's hard work. What do we always say? If you want to be patient, be around people who make you impatient. If you want to learn how to be gentle, be around people who are gruff. Whenever, that's the only way for one to grow. This reality that is a very different kind of kingdom. And we only understand that when we immerse ourselves in this story of Jesus and of Israel, this kingdom, in Scripture, in worship, and in this community. The more that we begin to become fluent with the kingdom of God, the more that we will be able to see that kingdom and experience God as we go out into the world. My hope and my prayer, sisters and brothers in Christ, is that we will be a people who do not just intellectually understand who God is or the scripture or this kingdom, but a people who continually dive in with all of our being because it is in the reenacting of the story of God. It is in the immersion in scripture in which we begin to see the kingdoms and we then will be able to understand how we might turn to the kingdom of God as uncomfortable and as costly as it may be. For if it is the way of Jesus, it must be the road which we take. Amen? Let us pray. 
God, it is not easy for us to see the kingdom of God. We are constantly, throughout the week, we are surrounded by the kingdom of this world. And while we may try to pepper in the kingdom of God from time to time, what we understand is the challenge and the loss of that. So, Lord, we pray that you would immerse us. Help us to be immersed in this, your body. Help us to be immersed in Scripture. Help us to see where we are in this tapestry of God. And that as we do so, we might be shaped, our hearts, our minds, our bodies, in a way in which we then begin to see your kingdom blossoming up in ways we never would have seen before. It's in your name we pray. Amen.